Hi, I'm Tony Wilson, and I'm just standing outside the apartment of a friend of my dad's, actually. His name is Ray Snedden, and I spoke to him at an event that dad invited me to recently, and he told me such a sad story. He lost his wife to COVID just seven months ago. Her name was Marilyn Snedden. She was a legend of nursing in Victoria and in Australia. And even in her 70s, she went back into the nursing fold to help her colleagues and the state out when we really needed it. So she was a hero of the pandemic and she sadly lost her life in 2021 to this terrible disease. COVID Roulette. Stories from the pandemic. Uh, hi, I'm Ray Snedden. I lost my wife to COVID uh, November 10th, 2021. Well, Ray, thanks so much for coming on. Tell us about it. It was Marilyn Snedden. Tell us about Marilyn. Well, she was uh, involved in the health industry all her life. She was a nurse, director of nursing at, at the Alfred Hospital, and following that, chief executive uh, positions at uh, Masada and... Um, the brand new La Trobe Regional Hospital. And she was just a, a legend of the industry. I've, I've read the obituary in the Nurses Magazine. And I mean, you were involved at Cricket Australia for so many years, but she's, she is mourned like a great of Australian cricketer. A, a Warnie would be mourned. Yeah. She, she wrote the nursing standards. She was, I think, the co-leader of the strike in the late 80s. Well, you know, she, she called a spade a shovel and she did... So much work uh, behind the scenes uh, when she was nursing. I remember she used to run the Burns Ward at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the Tasmanian fires were sending a lot of victims, uh, burnt victims, over to the uh, Royal Melbourne. And uh, her shift would uh, come to an end. I'm sitting outside waiting for her. And she'd be there another two or three hours because the dressings had to be redone again and again and... And she was just totally involved. She, I've never seen a person be so dedicated on whatever project she took upon herself to do. And how did you meet? How did you get together? We met at a function, a party at Aries Inlet. <laughs> uh, back in those days, she was with a bunch of nurses having a, a holiday in a house that in those days was the only house on the beach side of, ocean, of the Great Ocean Road in Aries Inlet. So somehow I think uh, one of the boys, my mates, had met her or met one of the group on the beach and invited them to the party and, and that was it. We went out for 12 months, got engaged. Within uh, six months we were married, so it was a short whirlwind um, uh, romance between, between us and then we had nearly 55 years of marriage after that. And she was, I mean, the pandemic hits in 2020. Can you tell us where you were at in your life? Had, had, you, had you retired? What were you up to? Yeah, I'd been retired basically from the Australian Cricket Board. I retired about the year 2000. Packages were being offered, so I said, why not? And then basically when the pandemic hit, um, I was totally retired, playing golf once a week and um, doing some uh, pro bono work for very special kids. 
having a pretty good retired time and Marilyn was still working and she did this um, huge project in Hong Kong for 10 years uh, for Australian Council of Health Standards, ACHS, which was an organisation that accredited hospitals worldwide. So she headed up a group that did certain part of the world, including Saudi Arabia and uh, Hong Kong, Macau, China, uh, Malaysia, etc. So um, probably every second month was off for four weeks and, um, and, you know, I'd go occasionally. And this powerhouse woman, I, I believe from that article I read, that she was called back into service, into active service, once the pandemic hit. Marilyn was, um, she got a phone call from the um, McCallum Institute who took over, I think, from the Alfred of the hotel's um, program for the state government for quarantining people coming in. And she um, was, t- was asked would she come back out of retirement together with about four or five others and take over the... Um, the hotel quarantining program that the state government had uh, started, but uh, they um, said they would, the four or five of them, cleaned up all those hotels. I remember she was doing the Oaks, which didn't have a very good name. Six to eight weeks they uh, worked like navvies, and they were, I think, all in their 60s and 70s years of age, but uh, at the end of the day... Well, they worked themselves out of a job. They didn't didn't have anyone in there in the end, and uh, their end result was they didn't lose one one patient or one person at all in their program. Whereas I understand hundreds were lost in the uh, in the earlier program, which became a you know quite a, a political uh, problem with uh, the state government. Then COVID enters your life in in the worst possible way. To- Tell us about it, Ray. How did it it happen? Okay, uh, understand that Marilyn, being a nurse, uh, in her earlier days was a smoker, as they mainly were, and so were the doctors. In fact, they used to smoke on the wards, if you remember, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So she had emphysema. It was starting to get worse, and uh, her immunities weren't as good as we all thought they would be, as... An ex-nurse, we presumed that, um, you know, her immunities would be fine, but they weren't. She got uh, pneumonia uh, on top of her emphysema. She she had other problems uh, resulting from an earlier operation uh, from a tumour in her cheek. And at the end of the day, she got COVID and on top of that, went to Cabrini first overnight. They did all the tests and said she's got COVID took her down to the COVID ward at the Alfred and she was put immediately into uh, ICU unit and she never came out of there. She was there for nearly four weeks uh, and the doctors, of course, did everything. They were great. The whole staff at the Alfred, nurses, doctors, administrators were very good. But the one thing that uh, I and my son couldn't come to grips with we weren't allowed in to see her at all. And it was only the day that she died that I was allowed in, not my son, only me. And uh, I spent a couple of hours with her in the morning and then she died that night when I came back in to hold her hand. She uh, 
she was uh, comatosed and, and really, you know, wasn't with it. So, yeah, it was a, a difficult end and one in which my son is still, I think, uh, you know, suffering from that he couldn't say goodbye to his mother. Oh, this is horrible. Yeah. Um, how, did, how did she catch COVID? Tony, we don't know. We live in the city. We're in and out of lifts. Although, you know, we couldn't go very far. You're still walking in the city, crisscrossing people that uh, you don't know where they've been and where they've come from. And at the end of the day, um, the doctors and, uh, and even Marilyn and I couldn't work out where she picked it up. Uh, she got a very bad dose. I only got a bit of a scratchy throat, but I was positive and I had to isolate two weeks as well. So did she immediately display symptoms? Was it a difficulty breathing? I could see it coming uh, a week before I suggested she, she go to a doctor or, or go to hospital. I could, you know, she was struggling with her breathing. Uh, we couldn't walk, you know, too far without her having to stop. There, this particular Sunday, the uh, two, um, four weeks before uh, she died, she, um, she sort of lost her balance and um, she looked as though she hadn't uh, eaten anything for a while and just was about to collapse. We got the ambulance. Uh, they took her, as I said, to Cabrini and then on to, to the Alfred. But, yeah, probably a week out, we could see signs that something was uh, going wrong. And in terms of your positive result, did that mean that you couldn't even see her through glass? You know, couldn't you couldn't go down to the hospital? No, no, we weren't allowed uh, even in the hospital. No visitors were allowed anywhere near the reception. Even you had to wait outside if you were going to go down to the hospital. They wouldn't allow any visitors. And uh, eventually, when I went in, I had to be in the whole, you know, dress gear and. Um, Yes, it's not a pleasant sight to see your um, your best mate uh, in a uh, uh, ICU ward with all the um, uh, masks and uh, oxygen uh, uh, stuff going in and out, and um, it was um, and and three to four staff full time on each each uh, bed. It was unbelievable the uh, the work they were doing. And was she conscious enough to speak to you um, on a screen or something like that? She spoke in words only, not sentences, the morning that I I went in and she died later that night. That morning, the nurses were so used to their patients only speaking in, in uh, sort of one word, they would ask the question, they could pick up and ask the question of me, and we were doing it that way via the, the nurses. Uh, they were so so good in, in understanding what the patient was trying to say. But Marilyn could only get one or two words out, and that was about it. But it was, um, it was closure for me, to a degree, as closure can be. But uh, it wasn't the best uh, outcome um, for, for us, for... for our other son, and uh, and that was, um, you know, the tragedy of it all. That he's now living with um, not saying goodbye to his mother and um, not being allowed into the hospital, all that sort of thing. It's um, that's sad. 
can you say what she said to you? Was it a, you know? Oh, it was, um, it was really, you know, thanks for the, the 50 odd years. Thanks uh, for, um, you know, for our great life together. We, we did a lot of travel. Uh, we did a lot of things. We went to a lot of places. We were two opposites, that uh, absolute opposites. I was mad on sport and, and uh, made a living out of sport with a sports marketing company. And she was not interested in sport, but she would come to World Cup dinners and and days at the cricket and do her knitting and sewing and <laughs> and uh, all of that. And I would go to some of her official functions at hospitals and uh, mix with the medicos and uh, be out of my depth there. But at the end of the day, we always sat down at the dinner table and had a lot to talk about what each of us did and uh, achieved during our working days. And and did she obviously missed saying goodbye to her son as well, and, and she lost a son as well 25 years ago. Yeah. Was that on her mind that day at, at the end? Don't know. It was a bit hard um, because uh, we didn't mention Toby, who had previously died in a camping accident, but um, uh, it never, when life was normal, it never left us every day something it might be music it might be something someone said something would crop up which ah oh, that's uh, what toby used to say or toby used to do so ne- a day never went by when his name wasn't mentioned and that went on you know for the whole 25 plus years but it was um, it was a couple of hours that we uh, we looked at each other i, I could um, read in to her eyes what she was trying to say and um, and I could express what I was saying and she'd nod and and whatever else but at the end of the day uh, I know that uh, she knew it was the end and I know that she was in a funny way looking forward to ending it because she'd been in uh, a lot of uh, discomfort and, and pain, couldn't breathe. And I mean, I can't think of anything worse than not being able to breathe and, and being aware of it. And I presume she embraced vaccination as a nurse, was she? Yeah, she was double vaxxed and about to have a third vax uh, in those days. I think the emphysema really drained a lot out of her, and particularly the last um, 12 months or so. But she never let on. No one knew. I didn't know until only weeks beforehand when I read a medical report that uh, stated that she had emphysema. I just thought she she was just, you know, out of breath, that was all, but uh, I didn't know it had been diagnosed as emphysema. And, and Ray, what, how, how have you felt about COVID? Do, do you find it hard to watch people with no masks on trams when the sense that you've lost someone? Yes, it still drives me mad. I want to stop the tram. I use public transport a lot. And I would say still to this day, even though there are signs on trams and trains and we hear it over the uh, uh, loudspeakers and the um, trams and trains often uh, make those announcements, please wear masks when travelling, I'd say only 50% take any notice. But God, we've still got 10,000 plus a day coming up with uh, COVID and um, here we are not wearing masks and uh, trams are now packed as they weren't for a couple of years 
I wear masks as often as I can, but um, I won't go to the football. I haven't been to the football for three years now. Being an avid uh, AFL supporter and uh, test cricket and everything, I don't go to any of those. And uh, certainly at the MCG where you're sitting crammed up next to each other, I honestly thought there would have been every... There would have been um, uh, social distancing, certainly in the members where it might have been every second seat. But no, we're all crammed up and uh, and I won't go until, until um, the whole epidemic is... Uh, over if it's ever going to happen or whether they change the um, social distancing. Do you think people sort of write off Marilyn was someone with what they'd call an underlying health condition? Hmm. Do you think there's been like people just go oh that's people that's underlying health conditions we won't worry about them. Do you think that's been a bit of people's attitude that they'll be right? Well Marilyn um no one around Marilyn ever thought that she would die of COVID and that uh, even though she had uh, known underlying factors, um, no one thought they were bad enough to to end up, you know, dying in, in a short period of time. And how old was she? 75, which is, you know, not that old. I think the average age now for females is 81, I think, um, and, and how old are you, right? Uh, 81. 81. I'll be 82 in a few days, actually. Well, happy birthday. And Thank I, you. I, I'm guessing <laughs> this hasn't been your favourite year. but uh, No, or years. Yeah, well, um, thanks so much for telling this story, a really emotional and personal story, and I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Tony. Ray tells an agonising story of not being able to get close to a loved one who is dying of COVID. And to find out a bit more about what went on in the ICU wards, I thought I'd chat to an ICU specialist. His name is Dr. Andrew Casamento. He's worked at the Western Hospital. He works at the Austin Hospital. And he knows a lot about all things ICU and COVID. My name is Andrew Casamento. I'm a doctor. I've been practicing now for about 26 years. Um, I'm an intensive care specialist since 2008 and I work in Melbourne. And you've worked through this amazing time. I mean, has it been the most amazing time for you? It's certainly been different. Um, we, you know, have experienced things which I've never experienced before. I've seen a disease process which I obviously have never seen before but having said that it's it's a variation on what I'm used to dealing with and have dealt with for the past 15 years. And so when did you see this coming? Did you see the pictures from Italy and say well, this is going to be terrible? You've got Italian heritage? Yeah, you got your... <laughs> You're right I do. So when when it first started I must admit I was like well this is just a virus. When we we had seen SARS before and it, that was we were worried about that and it, nothing happened. I must admit I was a little bit skeptical that it was going to be a big problem and then I saw one what was happening in Italy and then heard stories through colleagues of what was happening in Italy and then this thought oh no this is no good this is this is going to be bad especially for intensive care because we heard stories of Italian intensive care units in the north when they they tried to shut it down and the intensive care units there just being overwhelmed with patients and not being able to admit patients and uh, patients dying um, unnecessarily and not only that staff members getting sick 
and dying with it. So it was really, it was a little bit scary at the beginning. Yeah. And there was this frantic bed count. You know, we were all hearing, oh, there's 25 beds in the... <laughs> How was the bed count? Were you panicked on that front? Look, initially it was a bit hard to, to know. Um, the predictions at the beginning was we were going to have thousands and thousands of patients admitted. So I must admit, I'm not part of the organisation of BEZ, but we were told we'd be able to double the bed numbers and then plan for even, say, my hospital going from a baseline of about 25 beds to 100 beds. And we had plans to open up new wards where patients could be ventilated if necessary. Um, logistics of that were never going to be ideal if it came to that. But, you know, we would have, instead of a, a bay for an intensive care unit patient, we'd have a, an open ward of intensive care unit patients that had COVID. That's what the plan was anyway. And do you remember when you first saw it, first patient, first uh, day of this thing starting? Of COVID? That's a good question. It's like oh, I'm hearing podcasts about when was the first time you saw ET and you sort of vaguely can't remember. <laughs> but um, at that time, there was a lot of worries about personal protective equipment and masks and gowns, but, but we were actually okay where I worked anyway. So I, I wasn't that worried about catching it myself. And also, I'm, I'm relatively young and pretty healthy, so I wasn't too worried about it. I know that's not the case. The young, healthy people can catch it or could catch it. But at the time, I, I felt, look, we're being looked after appropriately. We've got appropriate equipment. The patients are being managed in rooms with what's called negative pressure ventilation, where the air gets sucked out. So I felt... I felt okay looking after the patients early on, but I do have remember that yeah, a vague memory of the first patient I looked after and being, oh God, I'm a bit scared going in there, to be honest. Tell us about the early days, the pre-vax days. So in the early days, I guess we didn't really have a great idea about how well patients were going to do or how well patients could do who ended up on life support. We only had really data from the early cases in Italy that a lot of the patients who got this and ended up on life support died. And so early on, we were a bit unsure, but there were rapidly studied therapies that we could use that improved mortality. And one of the simple things was steroid therapy, which sort of gained traction early on. So we, yeah, it was a bit unclear early on, but we were seeing people dying. Um, and, and quite a high proportion of those that got on life support died early on. And so at the end of 2021, Dan Andrews gave the speech, you know, it's now going to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Is that what you're seeing now? Is it, is it people who are, we still see quite high numbers of people dying or, or a lot of people compared to what we would have been used to before the pandemic. Yeah. Are, you, are you seeing a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated? So I'll, I'll take you through some phase. It's actually last year, towards the end of last year, when we had our lockdown, I think from August until December and there was sort of a race to get people vaccinated the groups of people that we were seeing and dying with the Delta variant were unvaccinated people so it was it was really quite upsetting because it was a simple thing to do and and it was just it just didn't make sense to us that there would be people protesting in the city that I'm not going to get my vaccine this and that because everyone we were seeing was unvaccinated it was it was amazing i've never seen anything like it where you just say if you go and do this simple thing go and get a needle injection you will not be in this situation and it was quite astounding and there was you know myself included there were just doctors just getting on any media forum and saying please just go and get vaccinated it's a simple thing you can do and you won't end up like this so that was late last year this year it's it's actually different so people who are vaccinated are are, are getting it but not really there's not many people in intensive care on life support who have been double vaccinated. The Omicron variant is seems to be more infectious but less 
serious. Now, maybe we're seeing it as inverted commas less serious because everyone is, well, most people are vaccinated. So this year what we're seeing are... It, it's it's difficult when there's not that many patients in intensive care at the moment so i don't look after the ward patients there are 500 patients in the hospital wards in melbourne currently or roughly 500 in intensive care there's only 25 or 30 or so so there's not that many spread out throughout melbourne i had a look just at the figures this morning oh there are still a significant number of those that aren't vaccinated so if you look at the figures i think there's about 30 people in intensive care and 14 of them have been double vaxxed so there's still half of them that haven't been so um, i think your question is this is this now a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated no not now i think most people have been vaccinated but the people that have, are in hospital are not as sick as they were last year. So the proportion of people that are in intensive care and, and is not as high as last year. It was a very politicised question in 2020 and 2021. Are people dying from COVID or with COVID? Yeah. Do you see COVID as the cause of death in those... If I see 17 deaths tomorrow, is the cause of death COVID? Or is it, is it always, almost always now, a severe comorbidity? The answer is I don't know because we're seeing, I think I had a look, the, the seven-day average is 14, 20 deaths a day or something like that. It's in that range at the moment. But, but they're not in ICU, these patients. So it's not 14 patients in ICU dying every day. So I, I don't know what those whether the patients that are dying now happen to die with COVID or because of COVID. The patients that are dying, I mean, uh, is it, I don't mean to be crude, but is it 14 nursing home patients dying who have COVID or, or is it you know, 14 patients with severe comorbidities. I don't know. What I do know is it's not 14 ICU patients dying every day. Last year, um, I would have said it's patients dying because of COVID. So when Delta was around, because we were seeing them in the ICU, the patients that were dying every day. And remember, there weren't that many last year, but the ones we were seeing were in ICU on life support. So in this episode, we've spoken to Ray, and he's he's an 81-year-old, and he lost his 75-year-old wife who had emphysema, but she got COVID and died over a four-week period in hospital. Mm. Horrendous story, really, because Ray had to isolate. He was positive as well, so he couldn't get in there. And in fact, even towards the end, to say goodbye, Ray did go in, but his son didn't get to go in to say goodbye to his mum. You know, and these, that's heartbreaking stuff. What were you seeing with relatives and access to hospitals and, and this sort of stuff? What, was your, what, what, what did you think? Yeah, um, look, I, I, I'm going to speak personally here. I may, I may not have the, the norm opinion, but um, I, it was probably one of the things I was most disappointed with, patients' relatives not being able to come and visit their dying um, relatives. It wasn't just COVID patients that this applied to, it was every patient in the ICU. There were, there were really no visitors allowed. And, and look, one of the... Um, one of the most heartbreaking things that I had to do was was speak to a family whose husband, father was dying in intensive care, but not of COVID, and they were hadn't seen him. So he'd been in for ten days and had an illness, which obviously caused him to die. But they hadn't seen him. And look, I think part of the grieving process and the ability to accept death of a relative is to see them go through the dying process, and and you can see that everything's been done for them. And despite that, patients have still died. Now, obviously, that's not going to take away the grieving process, but I think it helps down the line. Um, but this family hadn't seen their relative, and I had to ring them on the day via FaceTime and say um, that, look, unfortunately, your father's dying. We need to change the focus of our care to keep him in comfortable. And they, they hadn't seen him. And 
so they were allowed to come in at the end but I, I i think that really was a significant and unnecessary stress and traumatic experience for this family they didn't need to go through that there, there could have been precautions taken this is my personal opinion i think we could have allowed relatives to visit with appropriate precautions being taken full full protective gear um making sure they didn't uh, have symptoms and had been tested in the you know previous 24 hours 48 hours whatever it is with pcr yeah. Um, so I and 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 did the did your colleagues speak out on that? Was there a lobbying effort? What you were saying? Not really. I think. Look, we. I think in retrospect, a lot of intensive care doctors wished they had of. Uh, as a group, you know, we 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 probably could have lobbied more for that. But I think we were de- we were just dealing with so many so many things at the time. And I guess we felt at the time maybe it was the best thing. I don't know. In retrospect, I don't think it was. But I think at the time we felt, look, we need to stop the spread of this virus. And so that was one of the things that came up with. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure everyone feels the same way I do, Tony, about this. But I, I think we could have done things differently. And I know some, I know some intensive care specialists feel the same as I do. But um, I'm not sure it's the norm. I'm not sure everyone feels the same way. I think some people would have felt, well, no, the risk of the spread of the virus was far greater than this. But I think we've left a lot of families and relatives traumatised by what's happened to them in the past two years. Thank you. I, uh, it's, uh, it's been interesting two years. I'm glad I've been a part of it. But, um, yeah, there are things I could have done without, I must admit. But, um, yeah, thanks a lot. That's the end of the episode. I'm Tony Wilson. COVID Roulette is an Elfington Community Centre project and it has been funded through the Victorian Government's Local Community Access Grants Program. It's conceived and produced by myself and Leanne Coughlin. Our musical theme is from David Bridie. Our artwork from Lee Arkapor. Thank you so much to Ray Snedden for talking to us. It has been a deadly pandemic and that interview with Ray reminded us of that. Thanks also to Andrew Casamento. Great to be able to tap into your ICU expertise. That's it for the episode. And this one, as much as any, shows how tragic the pandemic has been. And our best chance against this deadly virus is vaccination. So get your third shot. Get your kids vaccinated. It's important.